Hopi, as we head into the warm weather months, the Stanley Cup about to be awarded, we've got some decisions to make. Maybe, just maybe, one of our 13 loyal listeners to this podcast want to give us some direction. Do we take a little bit of downtime over the summer? Do you want to hear from us or do you need a break from Farwell and Pope? It's farwellandpope at gmail.com. He is on Twitter at underscore Chris Pope. I'm on Twitter at farwell underscore OHL. We've been having fun with this, but I think, you know, everybody needs a bit of a summer break. I can tell you we're taking a break. <laughs> yeah, we're going to find some a break. We're going to find some least worst, I think. And the, by that, I mean, not best of, but least worst. The only way I can get through some of these months where I'm insanely busy is by taking a break as he checks his watch, as he gets a work message. This is constant <laughs> work that's going on right now and you know the only reason i can get through the season where i'm juggling two jobs in the air working insane hours is taking a break so you know just like the only way my lovely girlfriend kate can live with me is by taking a break from time to time so we need to take a break i would have thought that after more than a year of not spending any bus time with me not spending any time in any hotel in any OHL city with me, you would be chomping at the bit to do something connected to this game with me. I'm, I'm not going to lie, Popper. I'm a little bit hurt. Well, no, it's not you, but this is the longest we've went in quite some time. June 17th. Normally the season wraps up May, beginning of May, and we're done. And so now we're into June. And we're starting up in October. Listen, one of our former guests on this wonderful podcast we do called OHL Stories, the Bob father, Bob McKenzie, he even takes a break. He departs after I think it's the uh, draft or trade deadline, one or the other. Um, and he goes up to his cottage and he's gone for a while. So I need that decompress. You know, it's not you. It's the the stress and the work and juggling all these things. Eventually, I need to let the old cranium just rest. If I had a nickel for every time I heard that, it's not you, Mike. It's me. <laughs> just I, one nickel every time is all. But, you know, we'd it, both be is, rich. Yeah, absolutely. We've been having a lot of fun with this. Obviously, yeah. uh, we hope that you have, too. And again, let us know via email, farwellandpope at gmail.com, or leave a rating and or a review wherever it is you're consuming this podcast. We're happy to get that kind of feedback. And I don't want to give away too much, but you and I were just talking before we pressed record here today about the stories we are about to get. Like you and I didn't even, we didn't know this guy all that well. Uh, when we get to the guest, you'll understand why he's with us this month, because it just makes perfect sense. But we kind of got to know him through this podcast and the stories. Not only is he a great storyteller, but he's got some stories. I think you're going to love this one. We did. And he seems just like a great guy more yeah. than anything, right? Like he seems like a good person and you understand why, you know, David Branch and company went out and grabbed him while they could. Um, I got to ask you. Yeah. Are you still watching the NHL playoffs? Are you saying that to throw a little shade my way? Is well, that what I, you're doing? Not really. I'm just curious because a lot of Leaf fans, after the Leafs are eliminated, so after the first round, they stop watching. And that is every year. So I'm just curious this year, given uh, what's going on in the different playoff format and everything, are you watching? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I am. I have renewed my love affair with the game at that level, to be honest with you, in the absence of the OHL this year. And it's kind of funny because... 
obviously when we do the job that we do and we are so consumed with the Ontario Hockey League, 68 games plus travel. I mean, it just keeps us so busy that that the NHL is kind of a passing thought. You and I might get to a hotel room in a city one night, crack a beer after a game, either watch some highlights or catch a late game. But that's really all I'm seeing. I spent so much time with the game this year. Really, really enjoy it. I, I think it's it's a, I think the game's in good shape. Mr. Bettman, your game is in good shape, in my humble opinion. And as much as it hurt watching the Leafs go out, especially to the team they went out against and the way that they went out. Uh, I, I'm enjoying the stories and I, I follow former OHLers, obviously guys that we've seen come through the league. And in light of that too, I'm, uh, I'm fully on the Pete DeBoer, Steve spot train in Las Vegas right now after watching them and, and the job they did in the Ontario hockey league, quite frankly, nothing would satisfy me more. I would be so happy for those guys if they could add Stanley cup, to their resume and it's not would, just because they're playing montreal no would you say the league opponent. is would you say the nhl is still in a good place if the stanley cup final ends up being new york islanders against the montreal Canadiens? absolutely oh my gosh are you kidding me like a throwback to 40 years ago the two juggernauts right because right on the heels of the islanders dynasty came the Oilers dynasty and before the Islanders dynasty there was the Montreal Canadiens dynasty absolutely I think that would be phenomenal that's what I like with the league I don't want I don't want one team showing up time after time after time and let's again look for the story Las Vegas is a whale of a story considering how long the franchise has been around time after time um (laughs) every time someone says it that song pops in my head I have to I think that you're looking at it and the league may be in a good place because of the fact we've had Leafs Habs, we had Colorado Vegas. Like there's been some good hockey, but I just wonder if it's because of the playoff format this year. More people integrated into that northern division, and you don't have you don't see the normal matchups that you're normally seeing. I wonder if that's where you're getting it. Because I think a lot of the hockey is just broken down hockey. There's not as much room for skill plays anymore. It's a lot of wall play along the boards. It's a lot of chip it out of the zone, go and get it in the neutral zone, then chip it into the offensive zone and go and get it. I feel like it takes a lot of the talent out of it. You don't see a lot of that individual playmaking anymore. And I think that's why the Leafs struggled so much in the playoffs, because all that gets taken away. Because teams are just like, we're going to go in and we're going to play Dirty hockey, like not dirty, but like grungy hockey, if you will. Grungy hockey. And uh, I don't know. To me, it's it's good. Like that Vegas, that Vegas, Colorado series was probably the best hockey I've ever seen, I think. But it was just fast. It was physical. There was there was talent. Some of it, I'm just some games I watch. I'm like, holy boy, get to a power play. But that's me. You know, it, it's funny. You, you might be onto something there, certainly with the North Division, because there always seemed to be a reason to have an interest. I'm a big Paul Maurice guy, too, in, in Winnipeg. Uh, so I, I was happy to watch them. I, I would watch Connor McDavid every time the Oilers were playing somebody. Yeah, of course. Right. But but you might be onto something there. I don't know that if this had been a, a regular season absent the OHL, I'd be sitting down for a Carolina Nashville matchup, for example. So that's a fair point. But when I talk about the game being in good shape, like I enjoyed the regular season too. I thought the Leafs played a really up-tempo style of hockey. And that's what I saw most nights watching. And it's interesting too, that you talk about Colorado Vegas because I'm the elder statesman in this relationship. And so those are late games for an old guy like me. That's getting up for his day job at five o'clock in the morning. So I didn't see any of it and everybody was raving about it, including you. I see your tweets. So good. And so I, I think I, I definitely saw the last two. It might've been the last three. And I'm like, 
what's everybody talking about? Really? And I'll, yes, but I'll, and I'll tell you this, though. The first two games with Montreal, I've been like, okay, now we've got some up-tempo hockey. So it's, it's strange. I guess maybe it's a little bit subjective, but I didn't really get it from Colorado-Vegas. I'm definitely getting it from the two games so far, Montreal-Vegas. I thought Vegas, Colorado was just unbelievable. Back and forth, no lead ever safe. So physical. Like they beat the tar out of each other. <laughs> and, and, not, and not in like a fisticuffs way, just as a, as a tough game of hockey, playing physical, finishing your checks, making it hard for the team to gain entry into your zone, all that fun stuff. I, I loved it. I thought it was great. But I'm, I'm liking Montreal. I think to get by a team like Vegas, it's going to be very tough for the Habs. And they're going to need what they got what last night and that is a five-star performance from Carey Price oh, to get through I, Vegas because that Vegas team is one heck of a squad yeah so that's the game that Carey Price stole you can he steal you an entire series he probably can is he going to this time around especially against that team I don't know but you talk about the Habs and, and some of the things you might like I already mentioned the the referee I made the reference to, to Pete DeBoer and Steve Spot, which gives me a reason to cheer for Las Vegas because I'd love to see it happen for those guys but I, I can't help but smile a little bit when I see Corey Perry, the arch nemesis of particularly Steve Spot and the Kitchener Rangers. Although, well, no, it was it was the 05. So Pete, no, yeah, Pete was there until 08. So 05, London, Kitchener, Corey Perry, and Mike Richards out at the center ice after a playoff game. Yeah. That was pretty awesome. Anyway, Corey Perry's there. Uh, Nick Suzuki, former Owen Sound attack, and 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 not just there for the ride he's making contributions I, I love watching the guys that we watched in this league now performing at the highest level lots of fun I think that's what I like the most when um, we see guys like Nick Suzuki and when we saw him in his last year or his last couple of years even in the OHL when we we would watch the game and we would say after man is that Suzuki ever a player or wow he's good you know and then you think yeah but how's it going to transition into the National League and you watch a player like that and the answer is quite well <laughs> and, and very easy by the looks of it because he's he's a top player on that team. He might be their best player on that team right now. Tell me that's put, not... Not named Shea Weber and Carey Price, but still. Shea Weber. Tell me that's not, though, one of the most fun things about covering the game that we cover. Projecting the guys, right? Of course, there are the no-brainers. And you're like, yes, this guy's going to make the NHL. We'll see how it works out for him when he gets there. But the guys that might be bubble guys, or you just identify a guy in his rookie year, like, oh, this guy might be something. And then, you know, we, we play the games all the time in the booth, on the air sometimes. Yeah. Oh, this guy's going to make it, this guy, whatever. And then you you kind of, you know, give yourself a report card at the at the end of the year. And on that note, it's probably worth pointing out again that the guy that was always too small to play, including in the OHL, is now the AHL's Rookie of the Year. Touche. Riley Damiani. Yes, sir. Yes. It's just <laughs> another one of those guys, right? Like, yeah. You see like how good Riley was, an AHL Player of the Year, but still not good enough to get that next level. Like You have to be a standout. Like For a guy like Suzuki to go from OHL to NHL, and then to be like a, you know, last year he was good, this year, sophomore season, he just takes off like the work that he must have put in in the offseason to go- take his game from here to here. You know, it's something you, you've talked about the guys like the first shirts, right? Like nobody saw Car- or, uh, Corey Perry in the OHL and thought, I wonder if he's going to make it. Right. You know, like when I was working in Niagara covering the ice dogs and we had Alex Petrangelo into our uh, into our newspaper room and did like a feature on him. I, I was looking at this guy going, you're going to the show. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be and you're going to be a star. And then you see him and you're like, yes, <laughs> like and it doesn't make me smart. That makes me 
like just watching him because anybody who watches him, you knew he was going to be a star and he he's having one heck of a playoff too. Just one. I, someone else from the O. I will always remember that because it goes way back to my early days covering the league too with Drew Doughty. Like the, the first shift I saw that guy play, I was like, Oh, okay. This, this is special for sure. Why does he move like that? (laughs) How does he move like that? Yeah. Yeah. Why doesn't everybody? Oh, cause he's special. That's why. Yeah. When I was working with the Hamilton Bulldogs when I was in college, excuse me. And after Carrie Price story coming up, come on. Exactly. Have I told it before? Maybe after winning the (laughs) WHL goaltender of the year, won the world junior gold, won the CHL goaltender of the year, gets put out of the playoffs. I think it was Tri-City. He gets called up to Hamilton for like the last three games, I think, of the regular season. I saw him once in practice and I thought, I need to get this guy's goalie stick because this guy's going to be special. And I get it. No, I'm so angry at myself. I didn't have the nerve to just ask. I don't want to be that guy. that's just like, no, that's fair. Well, can I have a goalie stick? You know, I'm a goalie too. Like he doesn't care. I was probably his age. Like, you know, just seemed like a weirdo, but I wish I would have now looking back because he is putting on a performance. Like we haven't seen probably since 93. Uh, Turning our attention back to the Ontario Hockey League. Uh, let's start with the coaching vacancies, plural, because last week, as we did the introduction to the Pete Krupski podcast. Sorry, just real way, quick. Can, can I interrupt yeah. here just real quick? Because it's sure. something that we I've talked about with two people today. So maybe we should talk about it here. I just I want to go back. You talked about the OHL, yes, but it is an NHL story. Jason Spetzer resigns with the lease, the minimum deal, right? Did you yeah, see his said, you see his quote? He'd take less if he could. Yeah. Yeah. And and I was sitting around the bar. And or uh, sorry, it was the golf course. I was around the golf course and someone said, yeah, well, what do you think he's made in his career? And I'm like, I don't know. So I ask you, Mike, what do you think Jason Spetz has made in his career? Uh, what, well, you know what? Now, now that you put it that way, it's been a long career. Has I, I guessed 40 mil. Yeah. He I, signed that one big, one big deal. But he's, he's coming up on 20 years in the league, isn't he? So, yeah, so I, I looked, looked it up. 40 is a good guess. Yeah. 88 and change. Ooh. So okay. you, when you make 88 and change, it's okay to say, I'd take less than three quarters. It's because sure. you got 88 anyway. Well, so kind of co- Joe, Joe Thornton, probably you know, know, same right? idea, right? He's so. got over a hundred, which yeah. is crazy. Anyway, so OHL coaching changes. I apologize. It was just a funny story. Not at all. Glad you brought it up. And again, a former OHL guy, guy that we knew. We knew. Boy, if only we knew that we had known that in Brampton, we could have hit him up. Hey, someday. Remember the, the two knuckleheads, right. right? That are coming in every once in a while to watch your games. <laughs> Uh, last week when we did the introduction to the Pete Krupski podcast, which might've been one of our most active on social media, everybody loves Krupper. Apparently the hashtag legend started coming out all over the place. I love it. And let's face it. It's not wrong. Anyway, we talked about Darian Hatcher, uh, gone from the Sarnia sting, at least as the head coach. Uh, and this week we have another head coaching departure this time, Alan Latang in Owen sound, interesting times up in the Bay shore. Yeah. This one kind of came as a shock to me because same to me, right? They had Ryan McGill a little while ago, then Todd Gill came in, he gets fired. Allen takes over. And I really liked the job he did with that hockey club. Like that was not an easy win up in the sound. And despite some glaring holes between the pipes from time to time, um, I think they built a really tough team to play against. And I think they could have shocked some people Um, for him just to walk away from a head coaching job when, you know, the plan and Dale DeGray, the general manager talked about it in the release that when they brought him on, the goal was for him to be a head coach. 
That's what it was. Groom him as an assistant under these guys and then allow him to take the reins. So for him to just walk away, I wonder what is next for Alan Latanks. I don't think he would just walk away from that situation unless there's more to the story than we know without having something else lined up. A couple of guys that won't be walking away and we should just make note of this at the same time because i don't think we got to last week uh dave drinkle and chris lazary in saginaw inking extensions i think it keeps them there till the end of the 2023 season so i i i like that too because you see that consistency you want to talk about a, a franchise that certainly was trending up and you have to wonder i'll, I'll never forget the conversation with chris lazary in the preseason to the last season we played and they were of course coming off blowing the 3-1 lead to the Guelph Storm in the West Final. And and Chris said to me that following preseason that if it hadn't been for the birth of his uh, daughter that summer, it would have been the worst offseason of his life. That's how personally he was still taking it. So you knew that that Lazary and the Saginaw Spirit were on a, a bit of a mission and they, they had a, another nice team when everything stopped in March of 2020. So they're going to have that consistency in, in leadership from the GM down to behind the bench. And uh, I, I think that's a good thing for a franchise south of the border for sure. We did mention it. Cause I remember saying that the Saginaw spirit have had a better record each year. Uh, Dave Drinkle has been there. So he's gotten them better every year. Obviously last year, cut them short. They needed uh, four wins in six games to tie the record from the year before, but he, <laughs> they just tough. Tough break, tough break. Yeah, Drinkle, tough break. But they've done such a good job there. And uh, I'm sure they're one of the top teams that was very angry at this pandemic that we are continually living through because, boy, did they have a juggernaut of a squad. That they did. That they did. And then in Kitchener, uh, an associate coach in Andreas Carlson uh, has also departed. Sounds like there's another hockey opportunity in the works for him. He hasn't divulged yet what, but this is a guy, Popey, and I know that that you feel the same. Uh, one of my favorites to talk to on the road. You'd, you'd catch up with him over a coffee at breakfast and just start talking about the game. And he'd talk to you about it for hours, but uh, really interesting thinker. And uh, I, I'm sure he'll end up behind a bench in, in no time at all. I'll tell stories at a school. I don't know if we're allowed. One day on the road, I ended up having a roommate, a room with Dre and Andreas Carlson. And that's not normal for media members to room with coaching staff. Farwa wasn't there. I hopped on the bus. They didn't know I was coming or something like that. I can't remember. Anyway, Dre's kind enough to say yes. Like he could have told me to pound salt and I would have had to pay for my own hotel room or whatever. But someone said, yeah, Dre will shack you up. So that was nice of him. But we go walk into the room. I don't think my bags were down before Dre had a hockey game on the TV. And we sat there and it was, I, I don't know if I said 10 words other than just asking him questions because it was watching an NHL game with a former NHL player, tell me what you see. And he would, he, all he wanted to do was talk hockey. Do you see that? Do you see this? See how he went high to low. And I was just like, yep, yep, yep. yep. Okay. Thank you for the education. I'm going to go to sleep now. It was, (laughs) it was great. And you know, we, we saw it all the time. As soon as we got on that bus laptop open and he was on video before we even took off. Yeah. So he was hard worker, attention to detail. And he loved to win because the minute you brought up that he won a title, at the OUA level or U sports, he, you know, ear to ear, big grin, and he wanted to tell you about it. So I hope that he can find himself another championship because he is a good guy. I, uh, I caught Dre off guard one night at a, at a fundraiser and we were around the silent auction table or what the, the, yeah, the silent auction anyway. And there was a, there was an Austin Matthews 
something or other item and and it had four pucks from his four goal and so i just i just kind of casually mentioned wow where's yours and he looked at me like he'd seen a ghost and his wife was like see see people people remember this stuff <laughs> so yeah he's a solid guy solid citizen all around and uh, he'll be missed but he won't be away from the game we know that not to mention he was the what he coached frolunda in Sweden. Like this isn't a guy that just came out of nowhere. Right. Won a championship U Sports coach for Lunda, where all you have to know about for Lunda in this upcoming NHL draft, watch how many kids are taken from that team. I think the Red Wings will probably take three or four themselves. Like that is a hockey hotbed of a uh, of kids going to the National Hockey League. So he's his fingerprints are all over a lot of players. And we saw it even with uh, Axel Bergfist. Like on the road, Axel's uncle or something, and Dre are buddies, or they go fishing together. I don't know. There's some, their friends or families are friends somehow. And of course they are because they're both from Sweden and you'd never meet a bad Swede. I was just going to say, uh, just before we get to our guest and you introduce him, one more quick note former Mississauga Steelhead and Kitchener kid, Nathan Bastian, inking a deal with the Devils. So you talk about 88 Schmill for uh, Jason Spezza before. Nate's got a way to go, but hang in there, kid. It's your first NHL deal. 1.2 million looking good on you. Was it Landis Cog he was ripping? That one day in the penalty box? <laughs> no, that, Jeff Skinner. Oh, Skinner. That's right. You're yeah. the most overpaid over- player. Yeah. <laughs> now, hey, careful, Nate. Now you got now you got a deal. People could that's say right. the same about you. You got to be careful just, now. They just might. That's, that's right. right, Skinner. You're the most overpaid <laughs> player in the league. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I'm sorry, I can't. I can't hear you. I have million yeah. dollar bills in my ears. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Send me a text. Um, yeah, geez, that's cool. That's good stuff. Uh, okay, so our guest this week, uh, he started the Flint Inner City Youth Hockey Program. A Flint native, he is well used to be known as Firefighter Phillips. I think that will be uh, a nickname that he has moved past after winning the Willie O'Ree Award. Um, and now the director of cultural diversity and inclusion in the Ontario Hockey League, Rico Phillips. You know, Rico, it, it occurred to me that uh, Pride Month would be a great time to have on the OHL's new director of cultural diversity and inclusion. And wouldn't you know, we schedule this conversation and just days before the first female drafted into the Ontario Hockey League in Taya Curry happens in the 14th round to the Sarnia Sting. So I, I guess the timing couldn't be any better for your appearance on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, and I can only appreciate that. Like, my world is uh, continuous, continuing uh, evolving when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I couldn't be more uh, delighted that how far the, in my opinion, the OHL has come in just such a short time when it comes to this topic. Uh, the support that I've gotten from David Branch, the uh, commissioner, and from him all the way down has been incredible. And, you know, of course you would expect that, but some of the things that I bring, um, the topics and discussions that I bring to uh, players, coaches, uh, staff members, um, can be very sensitive. Um, we're, we're cracking into topics that – aren't easily talked about in an open forum. Like you'd be able to talk maybe you and your friend or someone about some of these topics, but to open up and then speak to a person of color, a person who has a very diverse background in me um, has been very enlightening. I think for the audiences that I've been a part of, because 
um, I encourage them to ask tough questions and, and encourage them to share with me some of their stories about being challenged in, in this space. So, um, like you said, this is a, an important month for a number of reasons. Um, Indigenous Awareness Month is also this month. And that's um, something near and dear to me now, uh, being that I took on the role with the Ontario Hockey League. Here in Michigan, the United States, where I live, I live in Flint. Um, the Indigenous people, um, the, their plight isn't quite as, um, I guess we don't know about their plight as, as well here in the United States. Um, and it's not that we shun or look, look to the side, but it doesn't seem to have the same level of intensity in today's world as what's happening in Canada. I mean, when we know what happened over in BC as far as unearthing uh, remains and those types of things. And then from my short time of working uh, within the league and um, minor hockey, what I found is that um, indigenous peoples are the most uh, marginalized and racialized people in Canada. And so that's a big, um, big thing for me as far as when I start to move about, when I am able to travel um, to the franchise cities like Sudbury and North Bay and Owen Sound, I want to make sure that um, I assist all those um, franchises in connecting with those communities so that we, uh, they're not just abstract members of the community, they're part of our hockey community, where they become part of our hockey community. So got a couple of challenges ahead, but they're good challenges. I want to talk more about Taya Curry, but you just mentioned the indigenous people in those cities around the OHL and your work with the teams to integrate themselves with the indigenous community. How do you do that? Well, I think the first thing to do is actually uh, to reach out. Um, uh, like I'm not saying that they haven't and a lot of things that I haven't uh, been able to tap into yet because I, I haven't been able to sit down with specific team um, and work on strategy because we didn't have a league this year. I mean, a season this year, excuse me. And so the idea would be to go sit down with um, staff members and then try to identify who those uh, members of the, that community is and then create this, um, you know, try to tie the bond together. So me personally, I'm, I consider myself a communicator and collaborator. And so I'm willing to be that person that goes and, and stretches my hand out and say, how can we... Um, we, the OHL, or we, Sudbury Wolves, be more in tune to your community. And how about this? How about you come be a part of our community? So that's, that's it's going to, it's not going to be, oh, lickety split easy. But I think what you'll find is, uh, I, I'm, from what I've gathered thus far, Indigenous peoples want to be a part of other communities as well. Um, they don't want to be marginalized anymore, any further. And, the, and in my opinion, the only way to limit that is to integrate everyone together. You mentioned at the outset, Rico, that these are conversations that are difficult to have, certainly in a larger setting. You might be having that conversation with a friend, but you don't have them necessarily in this kind of setting. And, and let's just be honest about this. If any sport needs a culture change, it's mm -hmm. probably the sport of hockey, which is a predominantly white person's sport. So when we talk about diversity, we talk about inclusion. Uh, I think hockey is at the forefront of all of that. Are you intimidated by the magnitude of the task that lies before you? Yeah, and that's a great question. When I first, when I got off the phone with uh, Mr. Branch after he, he asked me, offered me the position, I took it. I, I'll be quite honest with you. I hung the phone up and said, oh, 
what have I got myself into? Uh, I'm, I'm a firefighter by trade. I retired uh, last year um, just before I took on this role. And uh, I thought to myself, this may be the biggest fire I've ever been to in my life. <laughs> Obviously, figuratively speaking. But um, once I got um, saddled in and I realized how much support that um, David was giving, offering me personally, and he was bringing topics to me about inclusion that I thought I was going to have to bring to him. Because keep in mind, David has been the commissioner since 1979. So for me, that's a long period of time. That's a long period of the walls that have been built. Um, not necessarily we intentionally built them, but they've been there. Like you said, it's predominantly white sport. And so what I was afraid of is that I was going to be just um, – you know, a check mark, uh, so to speak, um, you know, um, just an icon and not being able to really do um, any uh, help, you know, affect change. But since I've been a part of it, um, I can tell you this, I'm not intimidated at all. And I tell you the biggest reason why is because most people that I've spoke with have been very open and very welcoming to me. Um, and so, as I look towards like some of the challenges I've had in my life, fighting fire is a huge challenge. You have to have a mental, it's more than physical, that's for sure. It's very mental. And not just in my career as a firefighter, but I was also a union official where I negotiated contracts with our city. I worked on diversity, inclusion, uh, developed policies and procedures around it. So I tackled it on a, a, a pretty large scale, not nowhere near as big as uh, hockey itself in general, but uh, to, to answer your question, I guess, and completely, I'm not intimidated, but I'm very aware that it's not just going to go easy just because Rico had a great conversation with you. As the director of inclusion for the OHL, how excited were, were you to see finally a woman be included in the draft process into this league? No, I, I seen the handwriting on the wall about two weeks ago when when uh, her name came to, to light. And so I got I got really excited. Um, my mind started turning about, wow, this is going to be an evolution in the Ontario Hockey League because they've never had to um, consider uh, what it takes to um, be inclusive to a female in a locker room on the, on the bench as an opponent. Um, and I know a lot of players, though, coming up at, throughout youth hockey have played with uh, girl hockey players, so I don't think it's going to be quite the culture shock for the players as much as it will be maybe for the fans or, or, or um, others that are, are really kind of putting their eye on it. But as far as um, the excitement I have, it's just like, I mean, it can't be better. I mean, for me, because this is like – when I think of my role, it isn't just helping to diversify, but it is to create the inclusive atmosphere. And this is one huge step in that. So um, I couldn't be more excited, to be honest with you. And I'm excited for her. And I've, I've uh, watched her in interviews, and she's very well put together, very mature, and seems um, very focused on the task at hand as much as any of the fanfare that's going on around her, you know, and, and you can bet that her and I will, will connect at some point in, in time. So um, just as a matter of saying, I'm a support person for you uh, more as much as anything else. 
as we talk here today, Rico, via a Zoom link, uh, you might have the best Zoom background we have seen yet. Even a Flint General's jersey is back there. Yes, but Detroit Red Wings as well. Of course, yeah. you mentioned already Flint, Michigan native, black kid in Michigan. What yeah. draws you to the game of hockey? You know, I, I started off, um, I had seen the sport a couple of times. I went with a youth uh, group from church to a Flint Generals game, and the atmosphere was incredible. I didn't really know what was going on much on the ice. I just knew it was incredible, and and everybody in town was there. So uh, it was in the heyday of uh, the International Hockey League uh, back in the eight, early 80s. Um, and so when I got to high school, I was focused on wanting to become a firefighter. But there was very few things you could do to prepare yourself to become one. And I got an opportunity to become a student athletic trainer. And so I said, this would be great because I'll, uh, I'll get to learn how to uh, patient care and, and how to work under pressure under these circumstances with people's health in mind. And so I took the challenge. I was with the football team and, and doing things very well, you know, under the, the guidance of the head trainer. And then my sophomore year, I had finally enough experience where he said, well, you can, you can work one of the other teams. And I said, all right, I'll work with the basketball team. And he chuckled. <laughs> and he says, well, that's who I work with. He said, you can work with me, but you'll be sitting in the stands. I said, oh, hell no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> that doesn't make – well, I was sitting in class. With, and the trainer was a, a teacher. Um, and he says uh, – or I had a student next to me who was a friend of mine. He says, hey, man, we need, a, we need a trainer. And he played hockey. I said, yeah. I said, they get their teeth knocked out. This would be perfect. <laughs> this is going to be perfect for me. So I approached the hockey coach, and, and here's this little black kid coming in this locker room asking, can I help him in case someone gets hurt? And he didn't He didn't bat an eye. He said, absolutely. You know, it's, it's to me, looking back, I, I realize now that he was taking on a challenge within itself. He has to be responsible for this other kid. And this kid is responsible for injuries. So uh, it was it was kind of unique. But when I watched my first game at ice level, guys, that's when uh, I was hooked. I mean, hook, line and sinker. So I uh, got some hockey skates and I asked coach, could I learn how to skate with the team? And <laughs> that's when he looked at me crazy. because We had a really good hockey team. And here's this bender going to be grabbing the boards during practice. You know, I have to worry about me getting crushed out there. But uh, he said, yeah, OK. And thank goodness I had a, the assistant coach would take the warm up 10 minutes, the first 10 minutes and work with me specifically in the corner and taught me all the basics. And that was where things launched. And um, by the time I was a senior in high school, um, I was still the trainer, but I tried out for the team, you guys. <laughs> so our team, our team had a roster of could only take 20. And so I went to tryouts. And when I got there, I was counting <laughs> There was 19 other players in me, man. If 20 guys were there, I was cut. I'd still been the trainer, but I was not going to have a uniform on. And so I was a fourth-plus liner, <laughs> put out only against the worst teams, which looking back at, at the time, I was frustrated by it, right, because I'm like, I want to play. I want to show I can play. But coach was taking care of me because it was brutal hockey back then, high school hockey, and one head down and you had got smoked, you know. Um, but um, also, I think what was really important to point out about that senior year is I became a high school or excuse me, um, a referee. And uh, that's where the challenges um, 
took a different type of turn because like I said, I couldn't barely skate. I couldn't stop yet when I started refing. And so the, the minor hockey players I'm refing, you know, the little guys, they're laughing at me. The coaches are laughing. You know, it's, it's, it's funny. And I understand now, but it wasn't funny to me at the time. But then there was this other thing that stuck out and it became abundantly clear within two months of me becoming a referee that I was the only person of color, you know, in, in the rink, in the facility, on the ice. And I was a person of authority. And uh, um, I blew a call like a lot of young officials do, but especially this young official did. And a coach called me over to figure out why I blew that call. And his assistant was just livid. And he came down and he just started screaming at me. And the next thing I know, he, he tosses the in bomb at me and, and then tells me he's going to kick my tail in the parking lot. And that was my first time that anybody had called me that name in that manner or used it even, you know, at all really around me. I mean, and so I was shook. I was, it shook me to the core. I, I was 17 years old, you guys, and this, this adult is, is saying this to me, and I was uh, just frazzled. I just kind of stood there in shock, and luckily I had a senior partner who kicked him out of the game, and he seen in the locker room. I was throwing my shit in the bag pretty hard. I was done. I was done with hockey. I really was. It's like it was already kind of the running joke that I was a part of it, Um. But then it became impactful, like, you know. So he, he was wise enough to say, Rico, um, today you're either going to grow up or stay a kid. And I looked at him sideways, like, what do you mean by that? And, and he says, you're going to come across racist people in your life. And if you're going to stick and do things that you want to do in life, you can't let those people wear you down. And it's something along those lines. I don't remember specific words, but basically he gave me the courage and told me, Rico, you had the power and authority to throw them out yourself and you would have had vindication at that moment instead of feeling dejected in here. He said, I want you to learn and grow from that. Don't step away from this. And I didn't. 34 seasons later, I still referee hockey. And through that experience is what developed the Flint Intercity Youth Hockey Program because I seen the incredible lack of diversity and certainly uh, lack of inclusion. I was told to go back and play uh, ref basketball where I belong, play basketball where I belong. Um, my own partners would tell me um, at opening faceoff, hey, Rico, remember the puck goes down. It's not jump ball. It doesn't go up. And, and I would just take it because I wanted to fit in. And I would actually joke about it myself, even sometimes first to alleviate some of the tension if I'm in a locker room, like let's say we're playing shinny or we call it drop in over here. And all of a sudden I come in the locker room, everybody stops talking. Well, what the hell, man? So I, you know, I'd have to make a joke and it was a coping mechanism that when I look back at it now, the 52 year old Rico, I go, wow, shame on Rico because, um, you basically made fun of your race and, at their benefit. And um, it wasn't, in, it, but again, this was 90s, 2000s, and the times were different. So what that did, guys, and the reason I'm telling the long version of all that is it, it set the scene for today or the where, it, where I was going to head and why I have this passion for it, um, you know, coming from where I, where I started in this world to where I am now. This is truly a second calling for me. Crazy story about the ref. Um, <clears throat> coming from that point where, you know, you have an assistant coach using derogatory terms towards you and feeling like you're the only person of color in the game of hockey to then 
launching the Flint Inner City Youth Program. How proud are you of that program? I'm incredibly proud. And I tell you, there's a number of reasons why. Of course, because we are creating opportunities for experience for not just people of color, but people from very diverse backgrounds. Some of the kids that are part of our program, let me, for, for everyone that's listening and watching, um, the program, what we do is we introduce the sport to kids between the ages of 8 and 11, um, absolutely free. That includes all the equipment, the training, ice time, as well as transportation if they need it to and from the rink. Um, and I do mean to and from the rink, not, not like uh, you get on the bus with a bus pass and dropped off down the way. It's from your house to the rink. And it's it's, it's the, what makes me so proud about being able to provide that is it's done through a collaborative effort. Right. So it isn't just Rico. It isn't some fundraising arm. These are uh, our uh, transportation authority here gives that to us for free. Um, the Flint Firebirds Foundation, they pay for the ice time. So we don't have to pay anything. We don't have to raise money for that. Um, Pirani's Hockey World, which is uh, the largest independent retailer of uh, hockey equipment, this base right here in Flint, they give us our equipment for pennies on the dollar. United Way, um, they help us pay for equipment. So what I'm saying is that we have credit unions, these types of things, all community-based. And the thing I think that that um, makes our program stand out is the volunteers that help us. So I was trying to figure out how am I going to get 12 volunteers each week to come out because it takes a minimum of 12 with these kids, you know, to make it so that it works. And I was refereeing a game. I was actually working the lines. And um, I know I'm supposed to be watching play, but because I was working lines, I was in a safe space. And I was thinking, man, how am I going to get these volunteers? And I looked up. I was doing a high school game. I looked up and I said, there they are. And so what I do is I contact the high school coaches from all the teams here locally. And these all are all teams from the suburbs and rural communities. None of, we don't have any high school teams in the city of Flint. And they are, each team comes in on a specific date. So they come in as a team unit and they adopt our program for that week. And so what I see happening is this cultural breakdown of walls. Like you have, I have uh, high school students who have never worked with or talked to a child who has a, a boy who has dreadlock braids coming down all the way down his back and has to squeeze a helmet on that boy's head or a girl who has hair all the way down her tail and, and it's braided up and has, uh, you know, it's just different. And they're like, yeah. And so they're scared and intimidated at first, but when they all step on the ice, incredible, the walls go away. And the reason I know it's effective is because when I go on and start refereeing games, um, parents will come up to me after a game and thank me for allowing their kid to participate and find out there are more ways that they can. So it's um, when you say pride, yeah, you can tell I'm gleaming a little bit, but I mean, that led me to, it led me to today, me talking to you without question. Um, I'm not sure if you want to talk about the Willie O'Ree uh, community. Heck yeah, we do. <laughs> <laughs> but um that's where, what I was recognized for by, by uh, I was nominated and um, became a finalist in 2019 for this prestigious award. In fact, voting is going on this week for this year's award, by the way. And um, it was based on our program. And, and guys, I went to the NHL awards 
And I, I hope that they're going to have them this year so these three finalists can go as well because it's an experience like none other. If you're a hockey purist like I am and any of us are, to have an opportunity to be behind the scenes with professional hockey players that you look up to and respect. Guys, I was in the green room and Mark Messier walked in and I was like, Mark Messier's here. And he was the nicest guy as all hockey players typically are anyways. Didn't, we didn't talk about hockey. We talked about life, and that's what was cool about the moment, you know. Um, I can go on a list of, of players that I met, but it's, that's regardless to the point that I was sitting in an audience of 10,000 people with a national, international viewing audience of I can't tell you how many millions. Um, in Flint, where there was watch parties at the Buffalo Wild Wings and a couple other locations. Um, and uh, the weight of the world was on my shoulders, so to speak, because I was like – you know, I don't know if I'm going to win. Uh, the other two finals are here, but I have to prepare myself to win and to not to win. So it's a, it's a, it's a bang. I had the whole night. I'm just nervous. And um, they, they showed video of our story uh, live during the show. And when my story uh, came up, it had a different emphasis the way they were introducing. So right when it was over, it was like high impact. It talked about the water crisis and a little bit here in Flint and how the antidote is uh, being physically active. And so we're part of that antidote and we we're you know, we want to provide this opportunity anyways. So at, at the end of the piece and the lights came back up, I said to myself, my wife looked at me, she says, Oh boy, you might win this. Cause I said, Oh, I was I, guys, I was at that point where I almost looked like, I don't know if I want to win this, man. I got to get up there from all these people. <laughs> so, um, just before, I, and where our award was second to last, by the way. So I'm watching the awards going on. So it's a long night. And uh, the moment of truth came, and Willie O'Ree called out my name. And um, it was at that moment I realized I hadn't thought about the walkway I had to take to get up there. But I took my walk. And if you were to Google search Rico Phillips NHL Awards, you can watch me my acceptance. But I got to tell you what happened. Um, <laughs> So in the morning, they gave us like 10 whole minutes to go into the, where, where the awards are. So we are somewhat familiar. So we knew where to go and what was going to happen if, you were, if we were to win the award. So um, when the awards show happened or when I got called up, there was this main staircase that all the award winners were going up. But that wasn't the staircase that they showed us in the morning. So I was slightly confused. And that was the first staircase I got to, though. So I didn't want to walk around that to that other one that they showed us in the morning. So I got to and I looked up. I said, I'm going up this main one. And I turned up that main one. And the steps were like this wide instead of a normal step. And I said, whoa. I like was taking two steps to get up. And I took that third step and clipped the top of my toe, man. And I was like, oh, no. I mean, it was slow motion. I was like, no, this is not happening. I'm going down. <laughs> and I thank God I'm 155 pounds soaking wet. <laughs> Pick my feet up and land it. And it's like, and I got up to the top of and Catherine Tappan and Elliot Friedman and, um, and Willie O'Ree, of course, was up there. And all I could, I went over there and said, can you guys believe I almost just bit it? And so we're all laughing. And then it dawned on me, dude, I've got 30 seconds to give this speech. I better turn around and give the speech. So I turned away from them and I started giving my speech. And if you're watching the clip, Catherine Tappan's trying to hand me the trophy. 
right? She's like, Rico, this is yours. This is you. And then she's like, he's talking. And so, so I'm up there and I'm doing my thing. And uh, fortunate for us, they put the, the text up there on, you know, on a teleprompter. So I was able to follow. But I realized that I forgot some things. So I started trying to ad lib. And I said something about, I, don't, I was going to say, add away Flintstones, because we're known as the Flintstones here in Flint. And I said, Attaway Flint, and it was coming out fire, firebirds, Flint, and it was all one word. Like, yeah, Rico, stick to the script. It's right there. <laughs> I acknowledged my wife, and it was a, one of the moments, like, I looked over, like, if she's crying, I'm screwed, you know, because I'm going to start crying. She was smiling. So all I had to do was give my impact statement. It was there, you guys. Two sentences. And when I cleared the second sentence, I want you to know I was doing everything in my power not to look down in the audience. And uh, because there was uh, Sidney Crosby was there, Alex Trebek was there. I mean, there was everybody was there, right? That was, <laughs> and um, somehow as I'm delivering the last sentence, my eye drifted down and caught PK Subban looking straight in my eyes. And I'm looking, and the reason I know he, we caught eyes because he did a big smile and did one of these. <laughs> I got starstruck, man. I said, thank you very much. And I gave a half a black power sign. I don't <laughs> from <laughs> and I turned and I walked off the stage like somebody was chasing me man and next thing I hear I'm behind the band and I'm thinking where am I supposed to be going where nobody's directing me and um I hear Rico Rico and I'm like who's calling me up here and I turn around it's Catherine Tapp and she says you want the trophy and I was like Oh, jeez. I don't know. <laughs> the band, you guys, the band's looking at me like, do we play him off? <laughs> it, was, it was a moment to behold. And uh, Elliot Friedman comes over to me. I said, I am so, I told him, I'm so embarrassed. And he says, Rico, that was the most genuine acceptance of an award I've ever seen, man. You should be proud of yourself. So that's my story of the NHL awards. Um, but I got to tell you, that was um, – coming home to Flint, driving down the road um, the first day after I got home and seeing an electronic billboard, and there were five of them in our community that congratulated me, it was when I realized that I could be someone other than Firefighter Phillips, who I'd been for the majority of my life. And um, like I said, that led me to today, to be honest with you. It's a fantastic story. the namesake, obviously, Willie O'Ree for that Community Hero Award. Uh, that's one part. But you've had the opportunity to come to know Willie a little bit yes. as well. Yes, What's, I have. What has his impact been on you, Rico? Well, um, we were fortunate enough to invite Willie to Flint, not just invite him, but him to come to Flint um, before the awards even happened. In fact, it was right around nomination time. Um, and I had not even heard of the award myself. So... When he came to Flint, I was so delighted. Like I was on, you know, it's hard to describe. And the reason I asked Willie to come to Flint is um, a backstory on that is because we have 30 open free slots for these kids in our program. And I struggle to get 20 kids. And the reason I struggle is because there's just no connection to the sport. Kids cannot see themselves in sport. So when their parents on top of it, can definitely not see themselves in sport. All they say is that's a white man's sport, right? Or that's a rich person's sport. And so what I wanted to do is not necessarily 
I, yes, I was going to say I'm going to use. I wanted to use Willie as an ambassador, his role as ambassador to connect with um, the black community here, to let them know that the, the icon, a uh, um, pioneer in this, because um, black people we look to those pioneers to look up to, and it's it's really important to our heritage to have pioneers. So that's why I was thinking you bring Willie here, and they're going to be drawn. Um, I will say this. I was so happy and elated to get a chance to know Willie. And he told me some, um, and we've had some incredible conversations, conversations like this. He talked about um, people hurling racist, um, racial slurs, ta- uh, taunts all the time. And, you know, we asked him, well, I assume you fought all the time. He said, you know what, Rico? He said, if I would have fought as much as I was called names, I would have never played in the NHL. He said, I knew who I was in my skin and could care less what they thought of. I knew that my job and my role was to be the best hockey player I could be, not be whatever they wanted me to be. And he was saying words like that that impacted me because I, too, within the last uh, – within months of, um, of, of Willie and I speaking like that, um, I was refereeing uh, a charity game. And uh, things got out of control and an adult called me a boy. And you wouldn't think, well, that's not that bad. But he said it in a racist way. He said it in, the, in a demeaning racist way because I had to clarify. I said, what did you call? What did you just call me? He said, you heard me, boy. What are you going to do about it, boy? And I'm saying these things. It's impactful because some people might understand how that demeans a person of color. It goes all the way back to Jim Crow law, all that stuff, you know, here in the United States, especially. And so the way I responded, because I thought at that moment, well, what am I going to do about this? I'm wearing stripes. I want to snatch him over that glass and whoop him up. Right. But I didn't because I had the stripes on. I had to remain professional. But the inside of me wanted to just destroy the guy. And then when I had this discussion with Willie, it like hit home. Wow. Thank goodness that I fell in, the, in a line of a quarter with a person like Willie O'Ree who had to go through much more than being caught a boy. Um, but he's just such a gentle, kind soul. He's the ultimate ambassador for the National Hockey League. And um, he's getting up there in age now, so he's not able to, you know, he had to retire from working the circuit, as he called it. But he, he really misses it. I, I call him from time to time. I feel very fortunate. I can call Willie O'Ree. And... Um, let me tell you a quick uh, one moment I called Willie O'Ree that's really significant in why I'm sitting here today. So a little over a year ago, as you all, as you know, George Floyd was killed here in the United States and not just for people of color, but especially people of color. It, it just, it was just incredibly terrible. Obviously you watched it and you said, how could this be happening? And so for me, I wanted to, I was like, this is a call to action. This is it. I got to do something. I can't just sit here and watch this and not do something anymore. I consider myself a bit outspoken, as you could imagine. Um, and so I wanted to uh, um, figure out what, what can I do. And to be honest with you, I looked at the local Black Lives Matter movement, but I felt in, deep inside it wasn't my platform. And so I called Willie because we're in pandemic and I was asking him, you know, how he's doing with the pandemic and, you know, what he thought about what was going on in the world and told him about my personal struggles. And he said, Rico, I'm going to tell you something. He said, your voice is being heard in hockey and people are listening. You better get your voice heard louder. And 
I didn't know exactly what that meant, but as that day went on, um, a fire got my belly and I fired off an email to David Branch and asked him, is there anything being done with diversity inclusion in the OHL? If, if uh, so, I wanted to, to be an ally, an advocate and support that person or that effort. If not, I'm really interested in, in creating an effort. And that led to a phone call. And he said, ironically, we were just discussing that we have to go way ahead of the curve here. We're so far behind. And then he, had, I had the fortune of meeting and doing a presentation um, with the OHL back in um, the fall before this had all happened. So he knew me, he knew my style, and I, he would call my charisma <laughs> and say to me. And so it, it led to, to the opportunity, um, to be honest with you, um, to the creation of the Director of Cultural Diversity and Inclusion. You talked about Willie O'Ree at length, and of course, you won that award for starting the uh, Flint Inner City Youth Hockey Program. I heard you tell a story, and I'm hoping you can echo it here on our podcast, because mm-hmm. that program literally puts smiles on kids' faces. And yes. I, I, I think you know the story I'm talking about. Yeah, I believe so. Um, so um, it's only been about three years ago. If it's not the same story, it'll still make you feel good. <laughs> So uh, we had a um, young man who who came to us and his mom, when she contacted me, she was all about, I want him to try everything. And I said, okay. She said, but we don't have any transportation. Okay, no problem. So they come to us with transportation. I talked to the young man. He doesn't say much. I figure he's shy. And um, he isn't really engaging at first. He's really nervous, you can tell. But we have every play, every person that comes to us, it's their first time ever on the ice. Like, we don't have any folks that have tried, maybe rollerbladed, but this is definitely the first experience. So we're used to that. Two weeks goes by, and he's really not talking. He's not responding. So I go to mom, is he okay? And she explains to me that he's autistic and that he doesn't speak much. And he doesn't express himself much. I said, oh, okay, I'm glad that we know this so that, you know, because I have high schoolers working with these kids. Like I said, I need to let them know so they understand. Well, uh, after I think it was the fourth or fifth week, um, the kids had all got on the ice. Everything's all, and I'm the last person get my skates on. I'm on my way down the hallway. And mom is coming towards me, and she's got tears in my eyes. She says, oh, Rico, Rico. And I'm like, Oh no, what happened to McKyron is his name. What happened to him? And she says, Rico, Rico, nothing happened. And I said, well, what's, what's up? And she says, Rico, he hasn't smiled in over six months. And today when he stepped on the ice, he looked at me and he had a big smile. And he had that smile as he skated around the ice. Right now, you guys, I'm telling the story. I have, I'm serious, man. I'm like, I'm ready to cry. It's so emotional because she's crying. Now I'm crying. And I go out there and I witness this. And so then I go purposely taking pictures of them because that's really what I'm the support person. I don't go out and do instruction anymore. I make sure that everything's going smoothly. And I take pictures of the kids during their experience. And I tell you what, you guys, he still skates. He doesn't play on a team. But I seen him last week and he's gotten taller and he's, he's just, you know, I'm just so proud of the fact that we are just taking – you know, some level of kid trying to create the next NHL superstar. We're trying to create opportunities for experience. And as you know, being a part of hockey, this experience is so unique. When the kids realize the skill that they've learned that no one can take from them, 
that pride that comes over them. It, it's an incredible feeling for everybody involved, honestly. Was that the story? That was the story, yeah. Goosebumps. Yeah, same. Goosebumps. <laughs> From Willie O'Ree, Rico, I want to talk about another name. Uh, and obviously, you've documented the impact Willie has had and, and continues to have on you. But Larry Proctor also factors prominently in your life. Who is he and why does he mean so much? You guys have definitely done your homework. Um, Larry Proctor. So in the midst of being a 20-something-year-old, I, um, my wife and I decided to go camping in northern Michigan. And we didn't have children at the time. It was just her and I. And, and uh, I was going to go. I went out fishing one morning uh, in, a, in a nice, a huge lake. But a little fishing boat, 12-foot fishing boat with a 15-horsepower motor. A little bit too much motor for that boat. But long story a little shorter, um, I was coming. I hadn't caught a fish, and I was bored and ready to come back in. And I started to motor up and started heading across the lake. And uh, I can't describe what exactly happened, but it felt like a strong wind gust pushed the front of the boat around, and somehow I lost control of the tiller arm. And so the boat went into a 360 spin at full throttle. And as that was happening, I didn't know what was going on. I'm reaching for the tiller arm and look in front of me and I see the motor. I'm like, that's not good. And what I didn't realize is that it popped me right out of the seat. I was midair as the boat's going underneath me. So then I go back into the water. When I hit the water, I came underneath and then the boat was went on top of me. Um, it was, you know, spinning around. I was underwater. I popped up and it came around again and I closed my eyes because I seen motor coming. I thought this is it. And somehow it came, I don't know how close, my eyes were closed, but the thrust pushed me out away from the boat. Uh, so now I'm going, what's happening? And I realized that I don't have my life jacket on. I was sitting on it and uh, the boat's going out of control and I'm in the middle of the lake and I'm a, slightly below average swimmer. I can swim in a pool, but I don't like swimming in lakes because I don't know depths and shit like that. So anyways, uh, I was probably after, you know, going back over the scene and stuff, probably about 25 feet of water. And um, I, uh, I, there was a boat nearby me and without going through the whole long down story, I'm thinking they're coming to save me. So I started screaming, help, help, help. I mean, I was screaming help. It wasn't no simple help. <laughs> I was screaming at the top of my lungs. I was so scared that the boat was going to straighten up and run me over, first of all. And I seen them reeling in their lines, and then they took off. They left me. And I wasted all this energy thinking they're coming to get me. And by the time that I realized they're gone and that sinking feeling happened, boy, that's probably not a good <laughs> pun to use. <laughs> but it is one. Um I was all alone and because I was breathing off, now I was looking back, I, I was bringing off all my oxygen going, oh my God, panicking. I became heavy like a rock and I'm very lightweight and so don't have a lot of buoyancy and it felt like someone was pulling me under. And at first I said to myself, put your feet down and make sure that you can't just stand up and save yourself, Rico. And I went under and I said, like, oh no, it's nothing but seaweed. And I came up and I went down about three times, took in some water, and I got to a point where I was floating on top of the water. I mean, just my face, my mouth, and my nose was out of the water. I couldn't stay afloat, and I was just, and I started praying. And I said, Lord, please just, I don't want to struggle to death. 
I'm writing whatever you, you want to take me, something along those lines. I wasn't really asking for, for much. I went, save me, Lord, you know, because I figured this was it. And um, all of a sudden I felt a presence over my shoulder and I looked over my shoulder and it was a man on a jet ski. He was about probably about 20 yards from me. And I looked over and said, oh, my gosh. And I got a burst of energy and I started swimming toward him frantically. And when I got over to him, you guys, this is it's incredible. I looked up and I couldn't see the man that was sitting on there. All I could see is that he had a gold necklace on him and it was swinging like this. And the sun was being blinging in the in the cross. It was a cr- cross on the necklace. And every time it blinged me, it almost blind me. And I was like. Oh my gosh, I've just died. And this is the jet ski to heaven. <laughs> I know it sounds funny and crazy, but that's exactly what I thought. So now I'm scrambling to get on this jet ski and the guy's freaking. He's like, Hey, I'll leave you. I'll leave you here. He didn't say it quite as nicely. If you don't stop. And I said, Oh, oh I'm alive. I'm alive. Well, that man was Larry Proctor. And Larry Proctor was getting ready for church that morning. And his son, who had gotten ready before him, was out at the dock of this resort they just bought that month. And so he, he his son uh, calls out to him and says, Dad, there's a boat going crazy out here. Come check this out. And when he comes out and sees my boat, he says, something's not right, son. He peels off the top layer of his church coat, clothes, his shirt and tie and stuff, and jumps on his jet ski and comes out there. And he told his son, he said, watch for me. If I signal, I want you to call 911 he's saying the boat got away from somebody so he says when he gets out there to me he looks and he sees my boat he's going he's looking on shore for the guy going where's my boat and he's like oh my gosh this guy must be in the lake and he says i looked over about and he said there i see you you look like you're jesus on the cross with your arms outstretched and your nose is just above the water he said oh my gosh there's the dead man right there he said, then you turned over and started swimming to me and scared the hell out of me. <laughs> but listen, guys, a lot of people may have been able to be in that role. But when Larry and I got to shore and I hugged this man like he is my father, I'd never, I mean, I hadn't seen him in years. I mean, I, I gripped him to the point where was, I could tell he was uncomfortable. <laughs> like, okay, dude. Uh, I thanked him. Afterwards, I've developed a relationship. So Larry and I, we, every year, July 30th, the year to the day that it happened, I call Larry. In 25, 20, 15 years, 10 years, five years, I go visit Larry. Larry is one, and his family, we, we're like family now. And I, I like to talk about him because without Larry, I wouldn't be here. But not just that, he's the, the kindest, one of the kindest people you'd ever want to meet. Very caring and um, and uh, I, you know, he's so proud of me, you know, like, cause he's watched my journey, you know, watched my journey through the fire service and now to what I'm doing now and, and that stuff. And he's very, very proud of me. And, uh, so I'm glad you brought Larry up, but uh, again, I wouldn't be here without him either. So got a lot of people play, pay credit to, I guess. <laughs> that's a crazy story. I, oh. I didn't know that one. Farwell, obviously did his research, but that's uh, I don't, I don't even know how to follow that. Like a life saving adventure. I'm like, yeah. how do we go from that into what the OHL is dealing with, with inclusion? <laughs> well, and that was a shortened version. Like I'm not, if I'm with you, I'm giving you animation, you know, about of me, course. How, but that was a pretty good, 
I like the way I shortened that one because sometimes <laughs> it's a little lengthy because it is so involved, man. I mean, really. But yes, um, go ahead. <laughs> okay, I'll try to. I'll try. I'll try to turn turn gears here a little bit. Okay. Um, most recent, most recently in the National Hockey League, Ethan Bear has dropped drew some headlines and you've shown your support to Ethan bear. And you, you talk about the indigenous stuff that hockey is going through and Canada is going through really. Yeah. How, how do you balance everything that comes with your job, whether it be uh, like the, the African-American race inclusion, the indigenous stuff, the pride stuff. And now obviously with Taya Curry as well, there's a, there's a lot of, if for, lack of a better expression, balls in the air for you. Yeah, that, that um, you're absolutely right. Um, what I've been able to do is kind of take things one section at a time. And one of my next tasks moving forward will be to form a, a, a equity, diverse, uh, diversity, and inclusion committee. And it will be primarily made up of um, the media will be former players from the OHL, players of color. Um, and then we, what we'll do is we'll add others into the mix, others that um, make up other demographics that we can make sure that we are using the right um, emphasis on each area and we have the right protocols in place. So if a person is, is the victim of hate speech or hate action, they feel like they have the right resources and it goes beyond. See, as you may or most people – I don't know if they understand how it works in the OHL, but players are very sensitive over um, creating waves. So a lot of um, players that get marginalized one way or another or part of um, some type of uh, abuse or harassment will tend to keep that under their hat because they don't want to create situations where it negatively impacts their futures. And so one of the things, the one of the negative effects of that long-term is when they hopefully become professional players or whatever happens in their professional lives and another trigger happens. And then they look back and say, well, this started in the OHL. And like I explained to the players and coaching staffs that that's not fair to the OHL. We need to be able to create an environment where they feel free to talk with someone about what's going on and work through it. Not we all right. What happened? Oh, who did it? And you know, it's not that as much as it is. Let's work together to strengthen the situation is, as far as if, a, if another player um, uses hate speech, then we can work with another player to figure out why and all these other things. So within the internal confines of the OHL, um, we're going to be able to hopefully address a lot of the situation. What I've been doing up to today has been having these, what I call courageous conversations with uh, the teams. So I've been on 11 uh, probably close to 15 or 16 calls um, with uh, with the teams talking about the policy that's there to protect them and what to do if you're a victim, what to do if you're a bystander or a victim, and how to be an advocate and an ally for diversity and inclusion. So it's not just policy driven. It's more like the whole package. We don't want to, we want you to feel like, you know, my goal is to hopefully eradicate it. But by doing that, what we have to do is we have to talk about how to have uh, emotional maturity, how to have um, control of your thoughts to the point where you don't cross these lines. Because one thing's for sure, you guys, I can't control a person's thought. 
Um, and, you know, you don't want to. If they think of that, that's one thing. But if they're saying that or acting upon, that's a whole nother thing. And so what we're trying to what I'm trying to do is work with teams to, um, you know, te- not just teams, but players in particular, to arm them with the tools that they need to succeed in this area um, so that you know, when they leave the OHL, diversity, equity, inclusion is important for them because that's what they've been ingrained in while they've been here. Along similar lines, I, I was wondering about this, Rico, from the fans' perspective. And, mm-hmm. and first of all, Chris and I like to think every fan in the OHL listens to this podcast, so they're getting yeah. to know you now through this. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's been just under a year. July marks yeah. a, a one year for you in this new role within the Ontario Hockey League. And yeah. it all traces back, as you've documented in this conversation, to George Floyd Black Lives Matter, which as a movement probably has more momentum than it has ever had, certainly in our lifetimes. So we're seeing these changes. We're feeling these changes in our world. From a fan's perspective, what might they see in the Ontario Hockey League specifically that's got Rico Phillips's fingerprints on it? Or maybe you just want to be that puppet master and behind the scenes, things are happening and fans don't need to see Rico attached to it. But what might they see in the league with this new department? So one of the things that uh, my goal, especially, like I said, once I can go visit um, the, the teams and speak to staff members just exclusively, <laughs> excuse me, virtual calls are great. But I think when we're in, in, in each other's company, we can feed off them, you know, we'll, you can feed a little better. So the idea is to kind of work behind the scenes to create. One of the things I'm hoping to do is help foster and create positive messaging, reinforcing the standards that are in place as far as how we want to have an inclusive environment at each and every game. So everyone feels welcome there, no matter what their walk of life is. And, and also offer potentially offer opportunities. If a person feels uncomfortable by something that someone said, that's very hateful, that they have a way, a resource to be able to address it as opposed to what happens now is we just go, that fool is being a fool over there. And then, let's just say something happens in Kitchener, um, which has happened as we know, and you got a fool yelling out racial slurs at a player. Well, unfortunately that situation magnifies and it looks like the entire Kitchener community feels that way. So what I want to be able to help provide is for the vast mass majority of fans that participate in the sport to feel more empowered instead of feel more awkward. You need to figure out ways to make that person feel less power empowered and more awkward. And so if we can create environments that suggest not just you're going to get in trouble, but that everyone is well aware that you can't be saying this stuff, even at a hockey game, freedom of speech. I want to make sure this is clear for people that are paying attention today. There's no such thing as freedom of speech. And probably looking at me, well, yeah, there is in the law books, freedom of speech. Let's face it is for when the government enacts some law, it says that you can't, uh, they can't um, negatively impact you based on your opinion um, that may be different than theirs. But that's basic premise of freedom of speech. In other words, if I were to say to you, Chris, or you might call you a racist term or some type of slur, you, that isn't free. I have to expect that there could be retribution from you. I have to expect that there's something is not going to go right by me saying those t- those things. And that's what I mean by it's not free. There's a cost involved. Now you can say it all you want, but there's potentially a big cost. 
And that's what I want to really try to figure out how we can emphasize about how we speak amongst each other. Because the fans, I, I can do a, a lot of impact work with within the league, but the fans, there's, you know, we have to really find innovative ways to um, curb a lot of the negative things that are said and done, you know, at ice rinks across, not just Canada, all across North America. Yeah. The worst really comes out of people in hockey rinks sometimes. Um, yeah, passionate, you know, it's yeah. a passionate sport. We, you mentioned it. We've, we've saw it with not too long ago with Giovanni Smith in town. Um, we saw racial slurs sent his way. We've seen players throughout the league uh, get suspended for using uh, homophobic slurs on the ice. There's been issues throughout the OHL. When you first took this position, I heard you repeatedly say your first thing you wanted to do was talk to the players and teams to find out where the OHL was at. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned you've talked to 16 teams. Where is the OHL? I would say that the OHL, um, based on the young people that are playing today, is in pretty good – it's going in the right direction. In other words, what I'm saying is, is that the 16- to 20-year-old today is much more aware and sensitive to what they're saying about people when it comes to specifically homophobic slurs and um, um, uh, race, race speech. What's more prevalent is microaggressions, and that's just because that's, that's stuff that we – that I've been working with the teams to try to – tap into and say, this is what a microaggression is. And this is, we're all guilty of them. And this is how we can curb making someone feel less than themselves. Um, but I would say that there's still work to be done. Um, when I say there's work to be done, I mean, um, there's, th- when, when we look across the landscape of the OHL, I've only counted four, four p- people of color that are, employed by the Ontario Hockey League, either by a team. Well, I'm the only person by the Ontario Hockey League, but by a team, Windsor Spitfires, uh, goalie coach, Saginaw Spirits trainer, and Erie Otters um, scout. And then also Mississauga has a scout who is um, South Asian. So those are the only four that I know outside of myself. To me, that expresses the lack of inclusion that has to happen long-term. So when you say, what's the state of the, the OHL? It's in good hands because you've got the support of the leader at the top. And then you've got a person like me who's going to work hard at developing ways to create that inclusion. But it's a long-term process. It's not going to happen overnight. Many in hockey understand the, the system, the way it has been working. It's like, okay, I'm hiring a coach. I'm not just taking uh, a lot of cases. You don't just take anybody that applies. It's who you know. What do you know about them? You know, we're talking. It's all kind of done behind the scenes. And so, unfortunately, um, if you're not in that know, um, I know um, a a coach that I've been in contact with, um, C.J. Ballers is his name. You might be familiar with him. Uh, He's a black coach, a Canadian. He has the the level certification to, to coach professionally. And he's having a hard time cracking into the OHL. And it's not because he's maybe not talent, but many times when you find out there's an opening, it's already pretty much filled. And so it's not that I want to change the way people are thinking about the best possible person for the, for the job. It's just want to make sure that others get those similar opportunities. Um, because I, I, like I said, I don't want anyone to be hired just because they're black or just because they're a person of color. They have to have the talent. 
And the reason I say that specifically as a person of color, because I want you to go in there and be the best representation of the person of color, especially in this environment. Right. So we, we don't just, in my opinion, you don't just want to throw people at a position be, to check box. And so um, when I think of the future, again, going back to what, where we're at and where the future holds, I think we're in good, we're moving the right direction from what I see from, from just, uh, I talked to seven players of color, like I said, interviewed them and got a real grasp of what the, their cultural experience was. And that's what was most important to me coming into this role. So we've been talking, uh, give me an example, like talking about ways of creating inclusion is, so let's have every member from different cultures amongst your team, that be Europeans, whoever, uh, pick a team meal. And we go to that team meal instead of the, the pasta and chicken every week. You know what I mean? And because that's one way, you know, food is a source of soul, right? And so that's one way of creating inclusion. So it doesn't have to be uh, just a hire. It has to be more, more than that. So a lot of work to do. Um, I'm looking at this as a long-term project for sure. Um, and hopefully, you know, when you see in 10 years from today, you don't even necessarily have to have a person that fills my role because that's just the way it is. Following that, Rico, you've mentioned the 16 to 20-year-old age demographic that, of course, is represented in the OHL, and perhaps this demographic is as aware as it has ever been and mm-hmm. as, is as sensitive as it has ever been. I wonder if that was why your, your outreach after George Floyd and your conversation with Willie O'Ree when he said, use that voice, amplify that voice – if your outreach was to David Branch of the Ontario Hockey League, it struck me when you said that, is this, is this the right demographic to have the greatest impact? Yeah, you know, because um, when I look across the landscape here in Michigan, there's still lots to do here. There is as far as um, um, amateur hockey in particular. Um, but it's so, and to me, it's so widespread. And I'll be the first to tell you, um, being uh, – you know, I love the state I live in and I, I wouldn't want to leave our state necessarily, but we are really behind. I have more clout and more um, expression in Ontario in this last year than I've had in the state of Michigan. I want to be able to do some of the exact same things from Rico Phillips personally, not the OHL director, to create um, opportunities to teach coaches or talk with coaches rather about having these courageous conversation saying, Hey, these are the standards. You don't say these things, <clears throat> excuse me, from the youngest ages up. I know there's not a black person in miles from where you, your teams are nobody in your league of color, but suddenly you go down to Detroit area and play in a tournament and there's people of color playing. And all of a sudden one of your players throws out a slur and you're like, what? Well, it's too late then because at that point you haven't addressed it the proper appropriately. And the problem with that is there's a victim on the other end of it. So um, when I think of um, the impact that it still needs to happen, um, thank goodness there's more sensitivity because it is making my job harder. People my age group, <laughs> I can't figure the sensitivity out. And what I try to express to them is it's just too bad we weren't more sensitive. It wasn't the timing, but it would have been nice to have been more sensitive back in the 70s and 80s when I was coming up, when I was caught in Oreo because I'm mixed. And that was my name amongst my peers and my, you know what I mean? So 
I'm thankful and grateful that the sensitivity is happening because far too long we've been, I'll be the first to admit, I've used homophobic slurs in a locker room and amongst people, and it, it comes from my, my generation. Now I completely understand how wrong I was, how potentially marginalizing people that maybe weren't even necessarily homosexual, but maybe someone in their family was. And so there's a lot to unpack when you think about a role like mine. But I think what's cool about it is um, the way you're able to impact so many people, if they're willing to be impacted, of course. But um, a brief, couple brief stories, um, courageous calls with players. One player talked to me about how he was marginalized once, just recently. He's a player of color and the impact that it made on him. He said that he, uh, it was court day. So those in the, in, that have uh, understand what court day is, they had to, pay, he had to pay a fine. And so when he went up to pay the fine, just so happened he's South, um, South Asian. And um, I think he's South Asian. Uh, it, regardless, um, his, his family's from India. I'm trying to remember the demographic that I'm trying to come up with. <laughs> but anyways, he went up to pay the fine, and he's a 16-year-old. The the 18-year-old saying, pay up, and he comes up and he says, oh, I know you got money. Is your dad, uh, was he in tech support? Does he work at 7-Eleven? And it was like, he said, the whole room fell silent. He was upset, felt extremely awkward. Nobody said anything. He said, I'm one of the younger players. What am I going to say to this guy? And he said, one person stood up and said something. It just so happened he was a black player on the team. There's only two of us of color on the team. And you almost, I almost expected him. I was waiting for him to say something, that he'd cross the line. So what bothered me more than anything was that 17 other players that were white players said nothing. They never said another word to him about it. He said, I never felt so alone in my life. And this is a 16, 17-year-old kid, you know. Uh, another one uh, that I get frequently is why do, why can they say the N-word in hip-hop, but I can't say it. And I had to – that's a very common question. Even coaches ask me about it. And I won't tell you the long, drawn-out thing that I tell them, but I give an education and history on the word itself and how there was a reclamation of the word within the, the black culture, especially in the United States. And that the reclamation meant that it was going to be taboo for, for people that weren't black to be able to use the word. And it's indescribable how that happened, but it happened. The bottom line is this, what is your agenda? Why would you want to say that word outside of that song anyways? It doesn't describe you or your culture or anything about what you should be saying. So that's the bottom line. But those are just two examples of when I say having these conversations that's opening up with these 16 to 20 year olds, they're inquisitive. They're willing to try to better understand what's going on around them than maybe I, I know I would have been. You talk about that, uh, the generation before this generation. I've been in a hockey rink. I've been in a hockey room. I've used homophobic slurs back in the day, and it was all just ignorance. I would never dare to uh, uh, use them again. Sure. Um and you talked about the OHL is heading in the right direction. It is pride month. The OHL is one of uh, the league itself has the pride colors and their logo on Instagram. Teams have done it as well. Do you think the OHL is ready for an openly gay player? Uh, yes, I do. Um, I think that the OHL is more now more than ever. Um, 
ready for an opening day player. Um, one of the things I concern myself with, and I know the OHL didn't do this because I talk with, you know, my colleagues that I don't want these awareness months to be performative. We need to figure out ways to make sure that this inclusion happens, right? So that we're not just talking a game and got our symbol out there. So people feel good or, or hate us. One of the two happens in a lot of cases with social media. But um, so when, when I think about um, the discussions I've had with leadership, the discussion I've had with, with players and teams, I think, yes, the, without question, that's what, I'm hoping that my existence will help provide is a, a nurturing um, open environment that if a person didn't feel comfortable at first, that they could reach to a person like me and I could either find resources to help that person, um, you know, feel comfortable, more comfortable or be that person that gives you the confidence that you need. You know, so like I've told all the players that I spoke with that I, well, I'm, I work on behalf of the OHL. So in other words, I don't work for the OHL. Something goes wrong. Someone says something to you. It doesn't mean I'm calling David Branch to guess what happened. It means I'm going to help you as a young person figure out what has happened, what is, how it's impacted you, and how you first can get beyond this, right? And then we'll look at the other person or the other action and determine if it was illegal, this, it's out of my hands. It's going, it's going to go up the chain. If it's immoral, then we're going to probably discuss it with that person if we can, or we'll work out ways. But the idea behind my role, and I've expressed this with uh, David, is that I want to be that arm, that arm that they can reach out, or the hand they can reach out to and say, "Listen, I've got this," and they know that I, you know, I'm more or less there for them as opposed to they're there to protect the league's special interests when it comes to this topic. Something tells me that following our conversation and storytelling today, Rico, that uh, the league is in very good hands with you in this <laughs> role. <laughs> we have, uh, we've reached a point where it's time to let you get back to your day. And Chris is always going to come in with one more, but maybe, maybe I can read his mind on this because among the jerseys behind you, there are Peterborough Peets and Detroit Red Wings. Both teams, of course, a guy by the name of Steve Eiserman skated for. Chris sure. thinks that's the greatest hockey player ever. He's wrong, but that's what he thinks, and we let him think it uh, as a Michigan boy. Any Steve Eiserman stories for my friend Popey over oh, here? Great question. <laughs> great question. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. Steve, why? He's our guy, man. <laughs> I was hoping, like, so the, the, the Red Wings jerseys were given to me uh, by the Red Wings. I, I did a ceremonial puck drop uh, to celebrate the Willie O'Ree uh, Award. That's the one on the top. The one that says Flint Fire, uh, that was, uh, they were going up to training camp, and uh, Dylan Larkin and, and three other players um, stopped by the fire station. I was still working for the fire department. And you guys, they, the Red Wings dropped off four hockey equipment, three hockey equipment for us. And we literally played street hockey with Detroit Red Wings and the floor of my fire station. Dude, I was skater. I was skater. I was running around and I had to just stop because I'm in uniform. You know, I stop. And I'm watching these guys. And this is just like, okay, here we go. They're, they're chasing the ball over there. I mean, they're working, you know, they're on opposite teams from each other. They're like, I got it, I got it. It's all. And the guys that we selected to help, I mean, to play with us, the one guy is a uh, Anthony Mantha fan to the tilt, and he was playing with Anthony. Anthony sent him a nice pass over. He scored. Oh my God, this guy, this fireman, man, it made his life. And it was an incredible day for us. Uh, they they gave us five thousand um, um, dollar gift certificate, or not gift certificate, <laughs> um, 
gift to the to the program. So those two are, are very obviously important to me. Um, the Erie Otters, um, they they seen the uh, Pete's jersey up there and, and said that one for me. <laughs> I like this. It's a way to get more. Yeah, so I didn't realize it was going to be such a good one. My wife loves it. Um, and then I got uh, before we go, I got to mention the Ottawa Senators because that's kind of like the oddball there. But it's a, a game or uh, team signed jersey. The Ottawa Senators invited me to come to Ottawa to celebrate the award, and I brought um, a team that had four players that went through our program to now play on a Bantam team. And they, we went over and played in a tournament. They paid for the tournament, the hotel stay, put us in the box and uh, went to practice and they gave me the jersey. It was, it was just awesome. Uh, so I can't, um, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Ottawa's love for me. <laughs> That's a great question, Farwell. I'm glad you brought up Steve Eisman. I haven't brought it up this podcast, but um, I do First have, ever. I know, I do have one more. As uh, the Director of Cultural Diversity and Inclusion with the Ontario Hockey League. I have a quote for you, and I want you to tell me what it means to you. Love is my religion, my soul is my chapel, and my mind is the temple. Okay. So those are actually... That's your, that's your pinned tweet on your Twitter profile, and I read it, and I loved it. Well, it's, uh, those are actually lyrics uh, from uh, a song called Love is My Religion by Ziggy Marley. And when I first heard that song, it just spoke to me because so many people try to draw these divisions, even with religion. And I realized that, man, I'm here for for the love of life. I love life. I love people. Um, Not everybody. You know how that goes. But you know what I'm saying? And it, it, it is my religion. It's what puts me forth. It's what gets me up in the day to do things for whether it's inner city OHL, the fire service is love for people and love for, for myself, to be honest with you. And so um, it's, it's my body and soul. It truly is. And when I adopted that, it really um, actually changed my whole aura. I mean, let's face it, guys, I was a firefighter in the city of Flint and what you don't know about Flint, it may, maybe what you don't know is impoverished community. And unfortunately, we had fires all the time, this carnage, death, and it, it's taken a toll on me. PT, I have PTSD. Uh, and I had to start to kind of get my head out of that space, like, uh, the world. And I heard that song a few years ago, and I just stuck to me, and I said, this is what I like about that is sharing it with people like you. said, I love that because that's all I, I, I can do is I just offer, you know, some positivity. So I'm glad you point that out. <laughs> I just think it's the perfect quote and perfect song lyric for somebody who's the director of cultural diversity and inclusion. <laughs> Thanks, man. I have to wear that one a little heavier, man. Heavier badge on that one. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> Rico, it's been, it's been great having this conversation with you, hearing some terrific stories. Uh, we'll do some progress reports over yes. the years as you do your work here. I know fans are excited to just be back at the rink, but we're going to watch these changes. And, and Chris and I have talked often about the Ontario Hockey League under the leadership of David Branch and how progressive it's been. Uh, mm-hmm. We're pretty stoked about this. So thanks for making the time for us. Yeah, you're welcome. I do want to add, because you asked what, what you'll see Rico on, and I meant to add this, that my hopes are to visit each team during game time and go down and talk to fans and get their view of the world, because that's the one area I can't really figure out how it feels to them. And so I'll be looking for fans at large, no matter their race, but certainly I'll be talking to women and people of color and find out how their experiences in each um, rink uh, that, you know, host the um, OHL team. So look for me someday. I hope you say, Oh, you're Rico. 
<laughs> well, whenever you're in Kitchener, you got to come up to the press box, say hello. And Absolutely. if I if I can, I recommend October season. <laughs> that's true. You want to be here in Oktoberfest, Rico. That's a, that's oh, make that yeah. put that yeah. on the calendar. I'm German, so yes, I do want to be there in October. There Always. There you go. <laughs> cool, guys. I look forward to it. Hi, I'm Logan Anderson, host of the Say the Damn Score podcast. On my show, I deep dive into the sports broadcasting business by, you guessed it, talking to sportscasters. The show has featured big names like Bob Costas, Kenny Albert, and Vern Lundquist, as well as many up-and-coming broadcasters who you may not know yet, but you will know soon. Whether you're looking for professional development as a sportscaster, different career paths, or if you just want to be entertained by hearing some of the best storytellers in the world tell their own stories, this podcast is for you. You can subscribe to the podcast on all major podcast platforms, or you can visit our website, saythedamnscore.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.